The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome Dr. Charles Benbrook. He is a research professor at the Center for Sustaining Agriculture and Natural Resources at Washington State University. He served as program leader of Measure to Manage Farm and Food Diagnostics for Sustainability and Health. Prior to that post, Dr. Bembrook has been in Washington, D.C., where he was executive director for a U.S. House of Representatives Agricultural Subcommittee. He was the executive director of the National Academy of Sciences Board of Agriculture, and he has participated as an expert witness in several lawsuits involving pesticides and agricultural biotechnology. Dr. Benbrook earned a B.A. degree in economics from Harvard University and both master's and Ph.D. degrees in agricultural economics from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He will be receiving a very prestigious award from the Organic Center that is being awarded. It's the first time it's been awarded to an individual for his scientific research supporting the benefits of organic food and farming. Dr. Benbrook, welcome. Thank you. You know, you have been one of my most important and trusted colleagues and researchers when I have to prove the benefits of organic food and farming. I want to know how somebody with a background in agricultural economics ends up doing research in support of organic food and farming. Well, I spent most of my career, almost 20 years in Washington, D.C., where the agricultural issues of the day often involved the impact of, of uh, fertilizer slowing into water, getting into drinking water, uh, the impact of pesticides, issues over agricultural technology, and in recent years, of course, the controversy about genetically engineered food. So as someone that served in a number of positions that dealt with national policy issues and and national challenges related to agricultural systems and technology, I was forced to become knowledgeable about, uh, in a number of different scientific disciplines, that one must draw upon to evaluate the impact of agriculture on the environment or agriculture on food safety or, or human health. And when you start to explore those areas of, of scientific research, you find that some of the, the more promising and hopeful work is actually going on, uh, focusing on organic systems that pursue a, a, a very different set of practices in food production and, and have uh, substantially different impacts on both the environment and, and food safety. And so that's... Uh, how I originally learned about and and became interested in the impacts of organic farming systems. Mm -hmm. And as a dietitian, I I have to share with you that through my training 
And even with the training we continue to receive, depending on who's delivering the message, I always think it's so important to ask who owns that message. We get messages like, well, there's no difference between organic and more conventionally or non-organic raised food. And then I look at your expert scientific reviews and those of others, and I think, how can anyone possibly draw those conclusions? There are three pieces of work that you've done that I consistently rely on. The first is one that looks at higher phytochemical or antioxidant levels and antioxidant nutrients and vitamins in organically raised fruits and vegetables. The second is that despite the propaganda, uh, for lack of any better word, that we hear from the industrial agricultural advocates is that, oh, we need genetically modified foods to use less pesticides when actually your research shows that we're using way more. And then the third grand piece of evidence that you most recently published, and we'll talk more about that today, is that we've got greater levels of beneficial omega-3 fatty acids versus omega-6 in organically produced milk. So let's take it from the top. With regard to phytonutrient chemicals or compounds in fruits and vegetables, how is it that organically raised produce has more of those compounds? There's a very large body of research comparing the nutrient density in organic apples compared to conventional apples or organic carrots or potatoes compared to the conventional counterparts. And it actually tells a fairly consistent story. There tends to be higher nutrient density in organic fresh produce for a couple of reasons. First of all, the fruit that's grown, the fruits and vegetables that are grown on organic farms, they tend to be a bit smaller. Because organic farmers can't rely on the readily available lower-cost sources of nitrogen fertilizer, which conventional farmers use to really push the growth of their crops, crops tend to grow a bit slower on an organic farm, and they reach maturity at a smaller size. But they also tend to have higher soluble solids in that they, there's less moisture in them and less sugar, but higher levels of uh, phytochemicals such as vitamin C and a wide uh, range of, of different uh, antioxidants that, that the plant produces to protect itself from either insect or plant disease uh, attacks or the scalding effect of the sun or uh, cold weather or other aspects of the, the soil that the plant is growing in. So in organic farming systems, the, the plants kind of have to fend for themselves more because the organic farmer does not have the option to spray pesticides, to control the weeds, the insects, and the plant diseases. And so the plants have to trigger their own internal defense mechanisms. And it turns out that the, the natural chemicals that the plant produces to, in effect, drive its immune response and, and protect itself from pests are among the important nutrients and, and antioxidants that humans get when they eat plant-based foods. So it's really the two factors. Organic crops are not uh, pushed as hard 
to grow big and grow fast, and, and hence there's less dilution of nutrients because there's lower carbohydrate and starch and moisture levels typically in organic produce. And then the second factor is that organic crops have to defend themselves uh, against pest attack. And in the course of doing that, they trigger the production of phytochemicals that many of which end up, end up being very valuable nutrients for human beings. You know, I was visiting a farm stand in California several years ago, and I asked if the farmer had any organic produce, and the farmer said, no, we need pesticides to feed the world. And I wonder how you respond to that kind of comment. Well, I, I actually agree with it. Um, I mean, even organic farmers occasionally need to use pesticides that, that are of natural origin. They're called a number of different things, but biochemicals or biopesticides. In order to comply with the National Organic Program rule, the pesticides that organic farmers use cannot be synthetic or toxic chemicals like uh, the, the vast majority of the pesticides used by conventional farmers. But, you know, I think that judicious use of some low-risk pesticides, both by conventional farmers and organic farmers, is going to be part of the, the equation in, in meeting uh, food needs uh, around the world for, for a long time. And when pesticides are used uh, as a sort of a last resort in combination with a number of other preventive practices, the farmer doesn't have to use nearly as many less toxic materials will tend to work, and the load on the environment and the presence in the food supply are just so much lower than is the case now with uh, many of our conventional crops that it, it really, uh, it, we can make an awful lot of progress on the pesticide front while still preserving some of the significant benefits from judicious use when they're really needed. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Now, I want to ask you, too, about the rise of genetically modified crops. And with biotechnology, crops have been engineered to withstand the spraying of largely glyphosate. And now, of course, we're facing something that concerns me a great deal, which is the approval or the pending approval of the 2,4-D-resistant crops and dicamba. But your research showed that even though the messages that we get about biotechnology being important because it will require less pesticide use, you actually found that genetic engineering resulted in a greater use of pesticides. How did that happen? When um, Well, first of all, there, uh, your listeners need to uh, understand that there's, there's really two major categories of uh, genetically engineered traits that have been added to corn, soybeans, cotton, alfalfa, and sugar beets predominantly. There's a few other minor crops, but the the three major GE crops are corn, soybeans, and cotton. In recent years, GE alfalfa and sugar beets have come on the market. The first GE crops came on the market in 1996, and, and the, they had one of two traits, and in some cases both traits. 
one set of traits render the crops insensitive to applications of the broad-spectrum herbicide glyphosate, uh, uh, properly known as, as Roundup. So a farmer could plant the corn crop and the, and the corn would start to grow, and the farmer would be able to spray the Roundup over, right over the top of the corn, not harming the corn but killing the weeds. Prior to the um, commercialization and marketing of Roundup-ready corn, if the farmer had done that, the herbicide would have killed the corn along with the weeds. So that's what that technology is all about. It, it renders a crop insensitive to a broad-spectrum herbicide. Those are the so-called herbicide-tolerant crops. The other major category are, are the uh, insect-protected crops or uh, BT transgenic crops. And what the industry did in, in the case of BT corn and cotton, those are the, the two BT crops, is they inserted a gene from a soil bacterium that produces a natural endotoxin that is, uh, controls a, the um, most members of the lepidopteran class of insects. So BT corn and cotton made it possible for farmers to cut back on the number of insecticide sprays targeting, in the case of, of corn, initially the European corn borer, and uh, starting in 2004, when a second type of BT was introduced to corn, the uh, corn rootworm. So when the GE crops were first introduced and for the first years of use, there actually was a, a modest reduction in overall pesticide use measured uh, on a per acre basis. So if you compared the pesticides applied to an acre of Roundup-ready BT corn to the pesticides applied to a conventional corn acre that was not genetically engineered, there, would, there was, for the first few years, a modest reduction. But by about year four, the use of herbicides, and in particular glyphosate, started to climb upward enough that the increase in herbicide use actually equaled and then exceeded the reduction in insecticide use associated with the BT trade. So uh, what's happened in, in the last 10 years now is the spread of glyphosate-resistant weeds has forced farmers to spray more often, spray at heavier rates, and add additional herbicides into their control program. So herbicide use in the GE crops on a per acre basis has gone up 50% to 100% from the early years of adoption. And this increase in herbicide use now dwarfs the uh, more modest reduction in insecticide use. So that's why when I did my analysis and, and other people that take a dispassionate view of the uh, official U.S. Department of Agriculture data, it's, it's really impossible not to, to see that there has been this dramatic increase in, in herbicide use, and, and it's, it's much, much bigger than the decrease in uh, insecticide use. Well, thank you. I think it's really important for our listeners to understand that, and especially when they hear messages that these crops are important for reducing our exposure. 
Let me take one moment and remind our listeners that we are speaking with Dr. Chuck Bembrook. He is a research professor at the Center for Sustaining Agriculture and Natural Resources at Washington State University, and he serves as program leader of Measure to Manage Farm and Food Diagnostics for Sustainability and Health. Now, your most recent report has received much national attention. It's critically important, and it flies in the face of many of the things that we think are true about milk. So the study is titled, Organic Dairy Production Enhances Milk Nutritional Quality by Shifting Fatty Acid Composition, a United States-wide 18-month study. There are several very important things that came out of this study. The first, in my opinion, as a dietitian, is the fact that, oh my goodness, there most certainly is a huge difference between organic dairy production and conventional or non-organic dairy practices when it comes to the quality of our milk. So here, as the dietitian gets the question about, should I pay more for organic milk? The answer is clearly yes. It's an investment. And the second thing that was really a shock, I think, to those of us in the public health community that have been preaching low-fat milk for all of these years, is that whole milk, the fat in milk, is actually beneficial, especially when it comes from an organic farming system. So did I summarize that well, or do you want to add some pieces to that? No, Melinda, you did a fine job. Uh, Our study, indeed... uh challenges some uh, some pretty stable pillars of conventional wisdom uh, and you know the team that my colleagues that carried this uh, this work out with me we were quite genuinely surprised at the magnitude of the differences that we found in in this very large survey this is the actually the largest comparison study of organic uh, versus conventional milk uh, carried out anywhere in the world. And so there's actually a very high level of confidence in the statistical results. Uh, We found that the important omega-3 class of polyunsaturated fatty acids were 62% higher in the organic milk compared to uh, the conventional milk. In addition, the omega-6 class of fatty acids, which at the levels common in in the American diet, actually promote inflammation and heart disease and are among the the fatty acids that the food industry is trying to reduce intakes of. In the organic milk, the the levels were 25% lower of these uh, omega-6 fatty acids. And, and last, there's a, a very important fatty acid called conjugated linoleic acid, or CLA. And this fatty acid has rather remarkable properties and both combats heart disease and diabetes and also has been proven to delay the onset and slow the, the growth of uh, cancer, of certain cancers. So when we found that in the organic milk, these three important classes of fatty acids were so significantly different and also all of them in favor of organic, of the organic milk. We realized that we had found something of of some significance. Uh, I've spent the last 10 years reading the science done from around the world on comparing organic food to 
conventional food, and most of the studies in the literature involve plant-based foods, fruits and vegetables and grains. But there's a growing number that look at animal products, and certainly the most carefully studied organic versus conventional animal product is milk. And so we found these differences in U.S. organic versus conventional milk to be far larger than any of the differences in nutrient levels in, say, an organic strawberry versus a conventional strawberry or organic wheat versus conventional wheat. So having found these huge differences, the editors at the journal to whom we submitted our paper, the open access journal called PLAS One, which is actually the generally regarded as uh, the top three or four general science journal in the world, the editor said, well, so what? So what? Uh, the levels of omega-3s and CLA and milk are still pretty low. Does it really make a difference for human health? And so we, um, in response to comments from the reviewers at this journal, we developed a first-ever nutrition model that characterized the contribution of dairy products to a 30-year-old woman's daily intake of omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids and, and CLA. And we were surprised to see that consumption of recommended level of dairy products, which is uh, the equivalent of three eight-ounce servings of fluid milk, actually does contribute a significant amount of omega-3s to the diet, a significant amount of omega-6s. But the really important thing is that the ratio of omega-6s to omega-3s in milk is so much healthier than in any of the other major sources of fat in the diet that when consumers seek out and get their omega-6s and omega-3s more from milk, they're getting a much healthier balance of these omega fatty acids than, than when they're consuming French fries or, or uh, any fried food or salad dressing or any other food that has a significant level of either corn oil or soybean oil in them. So the really exciting thing to us is that, that we were able to document, well, milk is, is not the richest source of omega-3s by any means. Salmon it has much more omega-3 when you compare an ounce of salmon to an ounce of milk, but the average American consumes 20 or 30 times more milk and dairy products than they do fish, and that's why it turns out that this improved fatty acid balance in milk, both conventional milk but even more so in organic milk, can actually contribute to a healthy diet. Now, how do we explain the difference? What is it about the organically raised cow or an organic milk? What is the difference on the farm that leads to the difference in the glass? Uh, finally, an easy question. It's really all about the grass that, uh, in the diet of the, the lactating dairy cow. There's um, no debate in the scientific community and, and literally thousands of studies from around the world that have documented that grass 
forages and legume forages in pasture and also grasses that are harvested and fed to the cows later in the form of haylage or baleage or dry hay contain a complement of nutrients that increase the production by the cow of omega-3 fatty acids in her milk. Whereas on farms, again, whether it's a conventional farm or an organic farm, doesn't matter. But on, on dairy farms where cows are fed a lot of corn, either in the form of grain or corn silage, that food, corn, is contains the nutritional building blocks of omega-6 fatty acids. So cows that eat a lot of corn have elevated levels of omega-6s in their milk and tend to have lower levels of omega-3. So that is what explains the, the rather dramatic difference in the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio in conventional milk compared to organic milk. The magic is in the pasture. I have to put my dietitian hat on right now and just emphasize, I can't emphasize enough, actually, the omega-3, omega-6 difference. I have read a lot about the fatty acid imbalance that we have uh, typical globally and certainly in the American diet. But I'm sitting here with the Bellagio report on healthy agriculture, healthy nutrition, healthy people that was published in 2013, and it concludes that most diets, with, you know, there are some regional differences, but most diets are deficient in omega-3 fatty acids and too high in omega-6. And we know one researcher, at least Dr. Joseph Hiblin, who has said that we could cut cardiovascular disease risk, and this is by 40% cut, simply by improving the balance of omega-3 versus omega-6. So when people say to me, gosh, you know, but that organic milk, it costs so much more, I think we have to balance that with the cost of cardiovascular drugs, cardiovascular disease, and to reevaluate how not only we raise our food, but how we think about the price of it. Well, I certainly agree with that, Melinda. And I think it's worth mentioning for your listeners that there is a very extensive literature, again, from around the world, that reports significant health benefits from the consumption of diets rich in omega-3s with lower levels of omega-6 for pregnant women and, and their developing child, and then infants and children, particularly through age two, but then still important uh, all the way through adolescence in terms of developing a, the, a healthy brain and nervous system. Omega-3s, among the omega-3s are some long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids that play a critical role in building the membranes in the cells and the brain and the nervous system. And individuals that have omega-3 deficient diets face elevated risk of a range of neurological and behavioral problems that basically have their roots in a in a brain and a nervous system that isn't wired quite right and doesn't work quite right. Our time, unfortunately, is up. We're going to have to leave it at that. 
I will provide a reference to this important paper so our listeners can learn more. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank Dr. Benbrook for being my guest and remind everyone that Dr. Benbrook is a research professor at the Center for Sustaining Agriculture and Natural Resources at Washington State University where he serves as program leader of Measure to Manage Farm and Food Diagnostics for Sustainability and health. We will provide a link to your personal website at the university as well as this important report. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you, Melinda.